The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Just ponder sovereign grace that washes me. Lord, would you do work in our hearts this morning as we consider your text, which talks again about sovereign grace. We're going to talk about some things that are in some way controversial this morning, Lord, and so I pray that you would give clarity to my words, that you would create grace in our body, grace towards one another, graciousness. Lord, be with us, I pray. Look over your scriptures and spirit, teach them to us. We pray for Christ's glory. Amen. I have found, as I'm sure you have, that if for some reason or another you're interested in starting a fight amongst a group of Christians, for some reason, one good way to do that is just to mention the word predestination. Maybe start, uh, maybe continue talking about it a little bit, but that works usually pretty well. And so I want to be clear right up front that I am that I am not into starting fights. I love you all, and I have no personal interest in sticking a, a stick in your eye just for just for the sake of irritating you. I'm not going to try to use the pulpit just to espouse my own pet position this morning. We are going to talk, though, about predestination and God's choosing. The theological word there is election. I'm going to use those interchangeably, election and God's choosing. And the reason we're going to talk about them is that as we're working through the book of Ephesians and coming through chapter 1, we come to several times a straightforward addressing of the issue. And so we're not going to dodge it and skip to the second half of chapter 1. We're going to deal with it. It comes up this morning in verses 4 to 6. But more than just a, well, because it's there, so we might as well, more than just a, a simple reason like that, I want to suggest that it's actually very important for the modern church, the modern American church, and by extension, our church, it's very important that we get a handle on this subject. Here's why. There are actually a number of interrelated reasons. In fact, uh, do you remember the quote that I read last week from the commentary, the one about how grasping the gospel as it's presented in Ephesians is important? For those who don't remember or weren't here, let me read that again. I'm going to read this quote. Grasping the gospel as it is presented in Ephesians will both challenge and refine the shallow understanding of the gospel that is prevalent in the American church today. Grasping the gospel as it's presented in Ephesians, if you can grab it, if you can get a hold of it and understand it, it will both challenge and refine what is a widespread understanding of the gospel in our churches today. And this doctrine right here that we're going to talk about in 4 to 6, the doctrine of election, choosing, predestining, that's a critical part of the gospel in Ephesians. Further, remember that being precedes doing. Being, that is, who you are, what God has done in you, how you are in, in relation to him, is a critical First, foundational element before we have any hopes of doing what we are supposed to do. 
before we have any hopes of walking in a worthy manner, we must grab a hold of our being. We talked about that week, that last week as well. And this is a significant part of your being. It is important that we grasp this. It will help you immensely. I'm convinced. It will help you to walk in a worthy manner, but more importantly, it will help you to worship. It will help you to worship. Verse 3 talked about how God is to be praised because of the astounding spiritual blessings with which He has blessed us. We talked about that last week. And what's the first thing that came to Paul's mind and came out of Paul's pen as he talked about the spiritual blessings with which He has blessed us? This stuff. The doctrine of election. First thing that came to Paul's inspired, spirit-directed mind. It's important that we deal with it. It's important that we grasp it. So, though I realize that there are differing opinions among us here this morning, I'm going to attempt to graciously preach the whole counsel of God to you as best I understand it. Your job, then, is to be humble Bereans. To let it sit on you. To weigh it humbly. To go home and sift the scriptures to see if these things are true. But I'm going to preach in the hopes that God will persuade you of the central issue of verses 4 to 6. And here it is. Here's the central issue of these verses. God's election is biblical. And is meant to lead to reverence and awe. Not argument. God's election is biblical and is meant to lead to reverence and awe. Election, that is God's sovereign, merciful choosing of particular individual people to become Christians. That's what election means. We're going to prove that here shortly. That God's election is apart from any influence, from any other being. It is His decision alone. It is His choosing. That's what it means. And it's biblical. It is taught by the Holy Spirit here and in countless other places. And therefore, it should be received and believed by all Christians. But it's not meant to just be received and believed by Christians so as to heighten our intellectual comprehension. God didn't give us this doctrine just to make us better educated. He gives it to us to pour gasoline on the inner flames of worship. To fuel you inside. To fuel you towards that walking and worshiping. That's the whole point of God's uh, work in us. To create worshipers of us who walk in a worthy manner. It's biblical and it's meant to lead to reverence and awe inside of us for and towards Him For the rest of this morning, we're going to wrestle with this passage in two stages, two steps. First, critically, we're going to ask, what exactly are we talking about? I say God's election is biblical. What is God's election? What are we talking about? We're going to spend a lot of time doing that. It might be a little technical in places because we need to figure out what we're talking about. When Paul writes about this stuff, what does he mean? But where we're going... The clue is meant to lead to reverence and awe. Where we're going, the second stage is why. Why does God elect? So what are we talking about and why does he do it? That'll be shorter, but it's going to be really the the main point. Let me read the text. I'm going to start again in verse 3. I'm going to read Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. First stage, what are we talking about when we read about God's choosing and His predestining? Well, it's hard to get much more clear than just those simple statements, He chose us, He predestined us. It's right there in the text, verses 4 and 5. It's right there. So you can have no doubt that this morning, if you are a Christian, if you have surrendered your life to Christ, you are in Christ and God chose you. God predestined you. But what does that mean? Let's begin with some definitions. First, the word choose. For as interesting as a subject as this is, you might think that the words would be more interesting. But the word choose, that's right there in your Bible, is actually a rather mundane word. It's ordinary. Its definition is not disputed by anybody. Get this, the word to choose means to choose something, to select something according to your personal preference. That's not that hard to understand. It's not indiscriminate choice where you just choose willy-nilly and don't care what you do. It's not blind choice where you don't know what you're doing. No, in fact, it is a choice looking at options and selecting one for yourself according to what you want. Furthermore, the form in which the word appears here slightly heightens that according to what you want part. God chose you because God wanted to. The chooser chooses. The chosen one does not choose. God chose you individually, particularly. But at this point, some will argue, and and graciously argue, but some will argue, yes, clearly, God chose. The word cannot be disputed. The definition's clear. It's actually in the Bible. It's right there. He chose with full knowledge of the options, with full concerns. I agree, Steve, that there's a problem. Steve, when you make this choosing an individual particular choosing, you've missed something. Because the text says, look closely, he chose us. Plural. What God chose was not particular individuals, but the church. God chose a family. He chose the concept of having a family. But if any particular individuals at all, or which particular individuals end up in the family, is not what God chose, Steve. Those particular individuals, they choose if they want to be in the family or not. God just chose the us. It's plural. Well, what do we make of that? It's a common argument. It's right to point out the pluralness of the us. There's a lot of plural language in this letter, and that's what it's emphasizing. Well, obviously, because I've said he chose you particularly individually, I don't believe this argument. Let me try to show you why. There are several reasons this argument falls. The most decisive is this, that if the plural means a group, but not the individuals, which is what it must mean for this argument to have any weight, 
the group, but not the individuals, then we have a huge consistency problem throughout the rest of the text. Look, verse 3, we have individuals or a group who's been blessed. No, if it's a plural, we have a church that has been blessed, but not the individuals. It's hard for me to understand how a group can be blessed, but no individuals in it be blessed. That's hard to understand, but the problem gets worse. In verse 5, we would have a church, but not its individual members adopted in Christ. How can a church be adopted in Christ, but nobody in it be adopted as sons? That doesn't make any sense. In verse 7, we would have a church, but not its individual members redeemed and forgiven. How can the church be redeemed and forgiven, but not the individual members in it? That doesn't make any sense. Certainly the church as a whole is forgiven in some sense, but it's the individuals that are redeemed and forgiven. In verse 11, in verse 13, I'm sorry, we'd have a church, but not its individual members who believed the gospel and were sealed with the Spirit. See, track the us all through this chapter and all through this book. And if it always means the group, but not the individuals, then there's a huge problem. Because how can the church be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and sealed with Him, but not the individuals? That's not what any of us believe. So to be consistent, we have to say the us does not mean the group, but not the individuals. And therefore the argument falls. God chose you individually. He did choose to have a church too. That's, that's true. But he chose the individuals in it. It's the first argument that's sometimes offered. But let me keep moving on. The choosing of God, the formal word here, election, is a careful, particular choice by God of individuals. And it's carried out by the closely related word in verse 5, predestined. Now these two words, choosing and predestining, are related to one another in a bit of a chicken-egg type relationship. You know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the choosing or the predestining? It's a little hard to tell. But it seems that the predestining, because it's the making of a plan, it seems that the predestining is the plan by which God decides to carry out his choosing. Definition of the word predestined. Again, You might hope it would be a more colorful word, but it's not. It simply means to destine beforehand. To choose something before it has come to pass. And it's not a wish. It's not a prediction that turns out to be true. It's a decision about something that is previously not shaped that shapes it. Beforehand. Pre-destining. That's what it says in verse 5. Determining a boundary beforehand. God looked ahead and determined, I'm going to work history like this. He laid out some boundaries and he determined things. He determined us beforehand. But here again, there's a significant objection that is frequently raised. And I'm sure that you've heard this. Because the definition of the word is straightforward, again, that's not disputed. But what is disputed is this. My friend says to me, Steve, the definition, you got it right. That's what it means. God beforehand determines something. But you've overlooked a significant word, particularly a word that's in Romans 8. The word foreknow, foreknowledge. 
Yeah, God determined beforehand. Of course, he had to. But he had to do it based on something. He had to make a decision based on something. What did he base it on? Romans 8 tells us those whom he foreknew he predestined. What he did, Steve, is he looked ahead and he saw who would place faith in Christ, who would respond to the gospel, and he foreknew that. He knew it beforehand, and then he came back and he predetermined it. That's how he wrote his plan. He looked ahead. He foreknew. That's what's going on in Romans 8. That's how God predestined. I'm sure you've heard that argument. It's very common, especially these days. But we have to ask, is that what the word foreknowledge means? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what Paul's writing about in Romans 8 and here in Ephesians? Is it or not? Sounds good, but what do we make of it? And the answer is no. It's not what's going on. Now this argument, let me be clear, is offered by sincere Christians who are sifting through the Bible. They're working on the text. They're not just throwing stuff out there. Maybe that's, maybe that's your argument, and I want to be clear that I'm not trying to, to bash you or anything, but I have to say that it doesn't work. The argument doesn't hold. Now, there's no way that in the next five minutes I'm going to be able to do justice to everything that's argued in this discussion. But because we're working on what are we talking about, what exactly does this mean when Paul writes these things, I'm going to have to offer a few reasons as to why this argument does not work. First, the word foreknowledge. It fails on two levels. The first one, foreknowledge. The second one related more to the text of Ephesians. First, simply, the word foreknowledge does not mean what is being claimed it means. You see, what's being claimed is that foreknowledge means that God looked ahead and then knew some things about some people. Sure. That's what's being argued. Thank you. And so we have to ask, is that what's being meant? And the answer is no. What is not meant is that God knows things about people. Not that. He knows people. Personally, relationally, as in Mary did not know a man. Or more to the point, in Amos chapter 3, God speaking of Israel and says, You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Now God knows everything. God knows all people. God knows all the families of the earth, but God does not know all the families of the earth relationally, personally. He chose only relationship with Israel. He knows Egypt. He knows Assyria. He knows those places. But there's no relationship. He knows them. That's what's going on in Romans 8. Those God knows. Those ones he predestines. That's what foreknowledge means. Foreknowledge is not a word talking about information. It's talking about people. He knows people. But more importantly than arguing about a word that's not actually in this text, we need to talk about what Ephesians chapter 1 says. And as we move further into this chapter, these couple of verses here, we're going to see another reason that this argument about looking ahead to know things and then predestining we're going to see another reason why that doesn't work from the text. Look at this here as we get more explicit in verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's what verse 4 says. Now, no reference to knowing the future, but quite the opposite emphasis. 
before anything was. That's when this happened. It sounds just like Romans 9, when Paul is writing again about election. He talks about God choosing people. He says, God chose Jacob, but not Esau. And then here's the same emphasis. Before either one of them was born, before either had done anything, so that God's purpose in election might stand. You hear the same emphasis? Before they were born, before they even did anything, before the foundation of the world, God chose. That would be a remarkably strange way to say, after looking ahead, to see what would happen amongst the people's personal decisions. The emphasis is always back, never forward. This gets more explicit when we look at verse 5. He predestined you to adoption according to the good pleasure of his will. Ask Paul the specific question. Paul, what did he base the decision on? Ask him that specific question. His answer is not based on what he knew they would choose, but exactly the opposite. His answer, Paul, what did they base it on? And his answer, based on the good pleasure of his will. It is all about God and God's desires, not our choices and actions. It's a perfect chance to say, he could have said, according to his omniscient understanding of the future. He has omniscient understanding, and Paul could have said that right there. Predestined according to his omniscient understanding. He could have said, according to his loving response to those who would choose him. Could have said those things, but he didn't. It's not there. Paul answers the question according to the pleasure or the purpose, what he intends, according to his will. And then again, in verse 11, he answers it in exactly the same way. Look down there to verse 11 for a minute. And remember, this is all one great big sentence. So we're actually still in his initial sentence discussing the same thought of the spiritual blessings, and he brings up again the predestining. Second half of verse 11. After he's talked about the spiritual blessings we've been chosen to obtain, Paul notes that again we're predestined, and he tells us the foundation of the choice again. Predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's just a stacked up sentence there. The purpose, the counsel, the will, all God's, all of it. How does God decide? How does he determine beforehand? He's got a purpose, and he counsels himself about how best to carry it out. He is his only counselor. Predestination and election is according to the counsel of God's will, not any other being's will. Or verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. And verse 4, done before the foundation of the world. God takes counsel from no others. God consults no one. When a king is said to act, O king, according to your pleasure, what is meant is king, do whatever you want. It's even more so the emphasis when we add on the qualifiers that are here in this passage. O king, do as your own plan and the counsel you give yourself, which forms your will about how best to carry out your plan, the planning and the counseling that you did before anything else even existed at all. King, do that. This statement is abundantly clear. It suffices to say, God chose. God predestined. It's God's work. There's no parenthetical. 
after consulting us to see what we, cho- we would choose. It's not there. It could have been, but it's not here, and it's not anywhere else in the Bible either. God chose you individually. God predetermined you individually. So what exactly are we talking about? Talk about electing and predestining. We're talking about the sovereign work of God alone. God's sovereign grace. You even think about the word sovereign. Sovereign is not a power sharing word. Sovereign is a sovereign word. All of it is in his court. The merciful choosing of and planning for individual people. Particular individual people to become Christians. A choosing that is a part from the influence of any other being, his plan and his purpose and his counsel and his will, and the resulting choosing and predestining of individual fallen rebels to become worshipers, adopted and forgiven and blessed children of his. It is sovereign. It is his prerogative alone. God picks. That's what's being said here. What are we talking about? That's what we're talking about. The sovereign picking of God. It is biblical. It is there. So I ask you, please, let this rest on you. Go home and weigh it. Compare other passages that come to your mind. That's what you should do with the Bible. But don't just discard it. Especially if right now you're sitting there kind of uncomfortable or maybe even a little angry at me. Don't just chuck it out and say, what does he know? What is he thinking? Weigh it. It's important. It tells us our being, how we relate to God. We're not consumer Christians that went shopping for a religion and decided that this one was the best one and so we bought it. We're actually dead. Dead men make no decisions, take no actions. God brought us to life. This is a significant part of our being. It tells us how we relate to Him. There may be a couple of reasons. There's two things that I want to point out here. There might be a couple of reasons that you're uncomfortable or angry with me. One of them could be because I skipped by what seems to you to be the most significant argument. Or I didn't address a certain topic or a certain text. And that, guilty. I plead guilty to that. Obviously, I've had to limit what I've talked about here due to some time and because I want to stay as much as I can in these verses in Ephesians chapter 1. So come and talk to me about those things. Come to the discussion afterwards. It's going to be in the conference room right down here next to my office. Bring those issues up. Work through them. But there could be a second reason that you're uncomfortable or upset right now. That one desires or requires, I should say, a little more soul work, I think. The doctrine of election, God's choosing, tends to do a chop job on our personal pride. Tends to cut us to pieces. Tends to cut the legs out underneath of us. So it could be that one of the reasons that you're sitting here uncomfortable right now is that you're feeling this challenged in you. Autonomy. Could be that that's why You're uncomfortable or angry. We are not inherently, as fallen human beings, we are not inherently, it is not in our fallen natures to readily 
embrace something that says it was not up to you. You were not able. We are much more willing to say he chose me after he saw that I would choose him. I have a free will, don't I? That leaves me in the position that I like to be in. I had a basketball coach one time that wrote on the chalkboard and it stuck with me all through my life. A saying that's helpful for some aspects of life, but in relation to God is very destructive. It said, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. I kind of like that because it leaves me in charge. It leaves me in the driver's seat. It's very dangerous in relation to God. If that's you, let me help by answering the free will question. I'm going to try to clear away one more intellectual stumbling block to help you try to evaluate, am I uncomfortable because the autonomy is being threatened in me? Free will. Yes, absolutely we have free will. You thought I'd say no, didn't you? (laughs) Yes, we have free will. That is undeniable. We are each free to choose according to how we will. You're free to choose what you will. But it is also clear that we have natures that control our wills. For instance, I cannot decide to live underwater indefinitely without a supply of oxygen. No matter how cool that may sound to me or to some others, I cannot choose that. I will die if I try that. None of us have wills that are entirely free from outside influences and controls. We are not free to choose absolutely anything. Let me try to show this with a a little picture here. Imagine in your mind two different rooms. In one room, chained to one wall, is a tiger that has not eaten in two weeks. In the other room is a similarly hungry deer. Two rooms. Now, at the other end of both of those rooms, drop in a huge mound of raw antelope meat. Two hungry animals. Both of them chained to the wall. Neither one of them free. Can't move at all no matter what they want to do. No freedom. Now, cut those chains and what happens? The tiger bolts over to the meat freely, begins to eat freely, and the deer, nothing. Why not? Deers don't eat meat. The deer actually is slightly repulsed because it looks like it might be his cousin or something. (laughs) He, He wants nothing to do with that. It is upsetting to him. He's bothered by it. And meanwhile, on the other end, the tiger is going to town. They both were equally free and only one of them went. That's the same way with our freedom. That's what our wills are like. We are not chained away from Christ by a mean God. We're free. The gospel is right here. Presented to you all the time. And the message is come, if you will. Anybody who wants to, come, please. Come and feast on the bread of life and it will satisfy you. And how do we respond? In ourselves, we're repulsed by it. We turn up our noses. We want nothing to do with it at all. We're deer in the presence of meat. 
We have fallen natures that as Romans 8 and John 6 and countless other places make crystal clear, we have fallen natures that are actually in rebellion against God, that despise Him, that are unwilling to come to Him. Romans 8 says, are unwilling to come to Him, comma, even are unable to. Choose as you will. And it's really clear what you will. You will not. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in unobligated, undeserved, stunning mercy, who before the foundation of the world, without consulting us who hated him, without consulting us, but only by decision of his mysterious, loving will, blessed be that God who decided to change your nature. And then he put the bread of heaven in your lap, and that which you had despised seemed like life to you, and you freely grabbed it, and you freely devoured it. You were free to choose as you willed. Bless God that he freely decided to change your will. But are you still bothered? I cannot see your heart, so I make no direct accusation here. I don't. But it's possible that you're still bothered at the bottom level because of that assault on your autonomy. Ask the Lord, please, ask the Lord if that is the case. Ask Him. Let it sit on you and talk to God. It has been, in my case, that's been the issue. And I'll be honest, I believe this, but it's still the issue. I still don't like my autonomy to be attacked. I still want to deal with God as if sovereign means that I have a consulting business. Maybe that's the case with you. God gives grace to the humble, and he has had to tell us that several times because we are inherently proud. He keeps repeating that message to us about us needing to be humble. Even righteous Job, as events wore on from him, for him, even righteous Job began to lean that way towards arguing with God. And then God finally stepped in and spoke and spent several chapters mercifully dealing with Job, cutting his legs out from under him. And Job sat silent and learned anew with whom he was dealing. We have a merciful, gracious, loving Father who is also God Almighty. He is the sovereign of the universe. It is his world. We are His creatures. He runs the show. Be still and know that He alone is God. There is no other. This is a bit of the gospel that I think is very important for us to grasp. We are plagued by a man-centered gospel that robs us of reverence and awe. And this is part of the solution. I'm going to let that sit now. What are we talking about? What I think we're talking about, I think it's been made clear. Second stage. Why? Why does God do this? Why does he choose? Why does he predestine? This second stage is shorter, but it's critical. Many times we never get beyond debating this stuff. 
And so we never end up with our hearts and minds where God intends our hearts and minds to be. He didn't give us this as an interesting debating item. It's supposed to lead us beyond the debate and lead us to a point where we are in reverence and in awe. Now let me break this down into two different parts. Why does God do it? First, God elects to secure for us what we would otherwise never get. God elects to secure for us what we would otherwise never get. And second, God elects to secure for himself what he would otherwise never get. God elects to secure for himself and for us what we would otherwise never get. The sovereign election by God secures for believers some things. Two phrases, one in verse 4, one in verse 5. Flesh this out. Why did he choose you? Verse 4. Why did he choose you in Christ before the foundation of the world? See the phrase, to be holy and blameless before him in love. That's why he chose us so that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. And verse 5, why did he predestine you through Jesus Christ to be adopted as his sons? As we discussed last week, every man, woman, and child who has ever lived was born in Adam, has fallen in Adam, stands condemned in Adam, and awaits judgment in Adam. All of us are born and grow up far, far away from blamelessness and holiness and lives of love. Incidentally, as as an aside, that love there, you can look at the punctuation, it's probably at the footnote of your Bible, The love is meant to talk about us, not about how God predestines. It's a life of love. And all of us grow up far, far away from blamelessness and holiness and love. None of us lives like that. This is not just kind of a difficulty for us or something that's kind of tough that we're going to have to deal with. This reality means everything because it means that by nature we are children of wrath. In Adam, mortal enemies of God, dead in trespasses and sin, hostile to him, unwilling to submit to God, unable even, as was mentioned earlier in Romans 8. Romans 8, Ephesians chapter 2, they're really, really clear. And they are alarming and humbling. We stand condemned and we are doomed. Our destiny is the place of eternal torment, filled with sorrow and anger, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth ruled by a wicked master, isolation, destruction. I mean, this is awful, but this was our destiny. But God chose you out of Adam and placed you in Christ to secure for you what you would otherwise never obtain. In Christ, you can now spiritually and will one day physically stand face to face, before the one whose voice is like the sound of mighty rushing waters. Think about that. The one at whose appearance the Apostle John fainted as if dead. You will stand before him blameless, holy. Wow. You stand before him characterized by love. That is not you in Adam. But it is you in Christ. That's not you before he sovereignly, mercifully elected you. But it is you now. Through Christ and his cross work, God, the merciful Father, has brought you to himself. 
The NAS emphasizes that. He has brought you to Himself by adopting you as His son, His heir, His namesake, His child. You were not His by birth, but you are His by second birth. You did not choose Him, but He has chosen you to go and bear fruit, and it will be fruit that lasts and leads to an amazing inheritance one day when all of the creation is made new and the Father gives the nations to the Son and to His brothers. Brothers and sisters, oh, how spiritually blessed you are. If God had left you to your own devices, if He had waited until He'd seen what you would decide, if He had refused to sovereignly determine for you a different destiny than you yourself would have chosen, if He had left you to choose as you willed, and did not act according to the happy purpose of his own will, if that had been God's way, then you and I would be lost to hell, separated from him here and there forever. That is reality. But that was not his plan. That is not what he determined beforehand to allow. He didn't do that. The sovereign God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has chosen to bless you with spiritual blessings of blamelessness and holiness and love and sonship. He determined before the foundation of the world to do this and He has brought it to pass in Christ. What a stunning, marvelous God you have. Does not worship rush forth from your heart. Does not reverence and awe in praise of the glory of His grace. Charge to the front of your mind. How can you contain yourself? Paul can't. To the praise of His glorious grace is how he continues. All of this to the praise of His glorious grace. Why is God elected? Well, to secure for us all those things we would otherwise never have, but also and more significantly to secure for Himself what He would otherwise never have. Never-ending, great, heartfelt, earnest, Praise of Himself for His astoundingly glorious grace. God is most committed to Himself because God is not an idolater. God is not committed to anything that is not the supreme being in all the universe, which means God is most committed to Himself. God is most committed to the fact that He be worshipped and praised, and so He is intimately concerned to formulate a plan that can obtain worship for himself. And if he never poured out grace on anyone, no one would ever praise him for his grace. We'd never see it. But if he left people to choose if they wanted his grace, that would never happen. So he elected. And he chose us. The Father poured out his grace on us by choosing to make Christ the only channel for this grace. We now praise Him. We will praise Him for eternity. But now also the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places who fight us and learn from us see this plan and they grudgingly give admiration to God because it's a marvelous plan. And even they cannot deny it. God graciously elects individuals to salvation in Christ so as to secure for himself great praise. We'll say more about this in the future, I think, because before this sentence ends, Paul's going to say that two more times, which tells you something about his emphasis. But now we'll close. God's election is biblical 
And it's meant to lead to reverence and awe. Not argument. That's the main issue here in verses 4 to 6. Blessed be God the Father who has with astounding, awe-inspiring, sovereign grace chosen and predestined us to stand before Him blameless as adopted heirs. Children in His kingdom. Praise God. Let me pray. Lord, I must pray, as Paul exclaims, praise to the glorious grace that you've given us. Thank you, Lord. Father, I know that there are probably some here who are, for one reason or another, upset, uncomfortable, stirring in some way, and I pray that you would minister to them in the appropriate way. You wouldn't allow them to just blow it off, but you would speak to them. You would lead them to truth. You would lead us to further dialogue about these things, but that you would not let us get stuck in dialogue and miss worship. Lord, accomplish that in our midst, I pray, for your glory and for the growth of our church. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.